Now, for something completely different, here is your host, Brian Wilson. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, people of all sexes, and especially all of you already starting your Valentine's Day gift shopping, welcome to something completely different. It's our first annual holiday special. So what's completely different is this is the very first all-inclusive holiday special, specifically designed to offend absolutely no one or everyone. It's just that inclusive. Whether you're celebrating old Tannenbaum, Harmonica, Qantas, Groundhog Day, Think Nice Thoughts About Dolly Parton Day, or opening day of the Chihuahua season, this pod is for you. Brian Wilson's my name. You know who you are. So with the formalities out of the way, let me introduce our celebrity guest, a renowned pioneer in the world of California and Sonoma wines. Over his 50 and counting years, He's pioneered Chateau Saint-Jean to greatness. In 1985, he and his bride, Elise, established the appropriately named Arrowwood Wines in Sonoma County. What a surprise. Blowing away the competition until 2010, when he put Elise over his shoulder and just walked out. <laughs> Ever since, he's devoted his wine master's attention to crafting outstanding grape juice at his Sonoma Estate winery, Amapola Creek Vineyards. In the interest of full disclosure, <clears throat> uh, Richard Arwood and I share a strange and unusual relationship. I'm strange. He's unusual. Uh, despite having known and chatted with each other since my halcyon days on KSFO in San Francisco a couple of decades ago, we've never met face to face. Now, now, many have believed that was a mere safety precaution. It actually was due to the fact that Richard and Elise somehow always managed to be somewhere else doing something else whenever I was been in town. Nevertheless, we've maintained this convivial relationship on and off the air. So when necessary, I can bring you his vast wine cellar of experience to the microphone and keep you informed and up to date. Uh, budding enophiles inevitably turn purple with envy whenever Richard Arrowwood can make himself available. Like right now, for example. Ricardo, welcome back, my friend. Thank you, Brian. It's my honor, my pleasure. Look forward uh, to it. I know we we're in a in kind of a limited time frame here, so let's uh, stomp on some wine talk right right away. So, um, sure. first out of the bat, I, I think I corresponded with you about this. Was twenty twenty three good for you and the grapes, or all we are going to have to fall back on our stock of frozen concentrate for a while? No, I think we're great. Twenty twenty three vintage was superb. Uh, I was talking to our when we sold Amapola Creek, we had a viticulturist who was our consultant viticulturist, Phil Kateri, viticulturist extraordinaire. And I talked to Phil and he was talking about 2023 vintage was really a slow ripening vintage, long hang time, very cool. Took a long time to get the flavors up, but once they were up, I guess it was just absolutely stellar, according to what Phil said. The strangeness of it, of course, was they were harvesting Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, Cabernet Sauvignon, all the same day, which is not usual. I mean, usually there's quite a bit of separation between those times of harvest of the different uh, variety of grape. And uh, apparently that was not the case. And apparently they finished, it took them a while, but they finished on the 3rd of November, he said. And hmm. uh, still uh, still pressing some of the extended maceration uh, fruit out of the tanks. But uh, he said the sugar was uh, came up, it was not crazy high, which is really, to me, speaks volumes uh, about 24 bricks uh, percent approximate percent sugar and uh he just said that there was perfect balance and things like syrah and grenache 
And one nice thing about having those sugars at those levels is we didn't have to, or they didn't have to add any water back. Well, why do that? Let mother nature, you know, if you have it pruned properly, you should be able to get in a vineyard from a given grape and a given vintage, uh, the proper balance of sugar, pH, total acidity and get what you want. So this was, I guess, according to Phil and great guy, uh, he just said that it was really wonderful. It was great colors, low pHs, balanced sugars, high acidity, and it was stellar. It was absolutely textbook. Do you extrapolate from that that uh, logically deduce that uh, there are going to be some equally remarkable or potentially remarkable bottles coming out of this of one grape or another? Yeah, I believe so. I mean, one nice thing about this, Brian, is that there was no fires uh, to, to speak of to put smoke taint yeah. on the fruit. Yay. And um, that made a big difference, I think, in this 2023 vintage. Something else I got, got my hands on that I that uh, might be a really, really good news for uh, for all the uh, California wine growers. I got a copy from a friend of mine who was a, was a prep school uh, classmate of mine 100,000 uh -huh. years ago. He lived out in Napa, the that valley, that other valley. And uh, Oh, yeah. I've uh, heard of it. The <laughs> <laughs> did some work at BV for a while, but anyway, the, the publication is uh, Wine Industry Insight. There, oh, it wine, is. yeah, the Insider. Yes, yes. Yeah. So they said uh, in this one part, low production volume in the European Union is expected. Italy and Spain record significant decrease with respect to 2022 due to unfavorable weather. Um, and France becomes the largest world producer in 2023 with a volume slightly above its five-year average. First harvest forecast in the USA indicate the production volume will be not only higher than 2022, but also the average observed in the last year. So everybody else, uh, Australia, Argentina, Chile, South Africa, Brazil, they're not doing so hot uh, due to the, the weather conditions and, and so sure. on. And uh, so it looked like... Uh, uh, be a great year for a great harvest out of uh, California and hooray for those guys and you guys. So, yeah. Uh, you know, the, the components are there. It's like anything you can make great wines. You can only make great wines from great grapes. Now you can, and you can't make great wines or even good wines from poor grapes, but you can easily make poor wines from uh, great grapes if you don't know what you're doing. And so <laughs> I think it's key that, that you've got some great winemakers out there that do know what they're doing. And I think that uh, the consumer is going to benefit greatly from the 2023 harvest, as long as they can be patient, because it could be a while before a lot of them are released. Yeah. Um, I'm going to so, get to that in a, in a couple of minutes. I thought um, uh, from uh, looking at the calendar with all the holidays that ahead, knowing that any one of them is a perfectly uh, great excuse to break out a special bottle of vino uh, sure. from a, from a, a baseline uh, perspective, what, do you say what are your pairing recommendations for the traditional turkey or ham or prime rib or peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for the occasion <laughs> well you know again it's always nice to start the celebration out with a bottle of sparkling wine or champagne or whatever you happen to have i elise and i have a dear friend and sharon cohen and her sisters have a company called breathless and they make a wonderful Methode Champenoise sparkling wine and uh, both uh, a Brut, uh, a Blanc de Blanc, a Blanc de Noirs, all excellent. And uh, that's what I'd start out with. And then, of course, again, depending on what, you know, it depends on what you like. And forget about what people tell you goes best with what. There are some things that, that people just, I, I have a dear friend, a next door neighbor here who just, he only drinks Sauvignon Blanc for, for everything white, red, green, whatever you want to call it. And wow. it works. Uh, it works for him. 
But for me, again, if I was doing, let's say, a prime rib roast, you got to go to Cabernet Sauvignon or a good, you know, solid Bordeaux type variety. I, I'm partial to Sonoma Valley Cabernets, but, you know, there's a prejudice there. Not surprising, that's for sure. But uh, I want to ask you a little bit about that because I know we've touched on it before. I mean, it makes a lot of sense, you know, to drink what you like. No point in ruining a, a really great steak with a bottle of Listerine. But uh, but isn't it possible that by taking that shortcut, uh, you might be missing out on a whole different level of enjoyment of the meal by not pairing a ribeye with a, a good cab or, or, I don't know, Merlot, Zinfandel, whatever, because you yeah. just happen to like that Moscato di Canelli your brother gave you uh, last year. <laughs> It's, to me, tasting wine, drinking wine is is not a voyeuristic uh, thing. You got to do it yourself. I mean, you know. And so, I think that whatever your palate is pleased with is what you need to go with. And so, again, for me, if you're producing a great prime rib, I understand that you and Cassie are doing just that. And if yeah, that's baby. the case, yep. well, I would go with a, a fine Cabernet or or a, a great Bordeaux. Or I mean, certainly Merlot, exceptional. Zinfandel would work wonderfully too. I mean, that's a California grape specifically, and uh, it would pair nicely with it. Again, it depends on what your intuition, what do you like? What do you want to drink with it? But, you know, turkey and things, certainly Chardonnay. I mean, I would, I would do that. Or Pinot Noir um, would, would do well with turkey ham. Another thing we do, I'll be honest with you, I'm, I know I'm digressing here a second, but uh, we love rosés if, if they're well made with... Uh, uh, things like ham or pork or, or pork material. And uh, it, rosés do well if they're made well. Of course, any wine can do well if it's made well. That's the key. Well, that, that's that's where the problem always comes in. I know we, like I say, uh, those of you listening, I, you know, have well, even those of you who are not listening, you have to understand that Richard and I have had conversations very similar to this. We've circled these wagons a whole bunch of times over the 20, 25 years we've known each other. And uh, I keep coming around to it, not only because of the fact that not everybody in the audience is necessarily up to speed on some of this business, but it's good to review and remind. And I sure. um, I guess, uh, you know, when you say, for example, like like a prime rev, good steak, something like that, you've got a cab, you've got a Merlot, you've got a Zinfandel. But then within each one of those uh, bottles, you know, there's uh, your cab, my cab, Cassie's cab, somebody else's cab, you know, uh, Frothing Schloss cab. There's all these different cabs, different styles, different grapes, different vintage, different years. And right. the the bottle that you might have had the last time you had a ribeye either doesn't exist anymore uh, or you just happen to have a different bottle. I'm trying to figure out a way to narrow it down. So uh, other than having uh, having opened a, a bottle of of Cab and a bottle of Merlot and a bottle of Zin all with the same steak, yeah, sure. you know, how could you know in advance that, uh, oh, Cassie's making the ribeye the, with, the, with the horseradish, so that means I'm going to have the fill in the blank because yeah. is it just by experience you do this or is there a way to yeah, unfortunately it yeah it is it's trial and error and it can cost you a lot of money to find that <laughs> right wine i mean i have to be honest with you what you need to do is find a producer that has been consistently pleasing to your palate and i mean no matter what the wine is that producer produces it should be good for you and i mean there's a lot of them out there you know generally saying a particular producer should be able to give you consistency uh, no matter what they're producing for you. So uh, that's what you have to look for. Be besides the, the varietal of the, of the wine and the variety of the grape that you're going to be tasting, um, I, I think that you just have to look at it and say, OK, they've been, you know, uh, Joe Smith's uh, winery uh, in uh, 
Timbuktu, wherever it is, has been consistent in giving me what I want. So I'm going to try their XYZ vintage of uh, Merlot or Cabernet or whatever it happens mm. to be. Well, how would you make a distinction? I don't want to get too far in the weeds on this because I have a whole bunch of other questions. But uh, for example, what would be the uh, the indication uh, based on the that you were talking about? So you've been drinking uh, the Smith Cabernet for uh, for a bunch of years, and it's it's always served you well, and you've enjoyed it. But somebody just gifts you a bottle of Smith's Merlot. Mm-hmm. Now, so what do you do? You, you pop the cork on that one, uh, you know, separate and apart from any particular meal, and make your assessment based on what your taste buds tell you from that tasting, or do you go ahead and pull a, pull a dead cow out of the freezer and give it a run anyway? Well, there's another way to do it. And I'm not a sponsor. I'm not being paid by Coravan, but you know, there is a system where you can actually, um, you take the foil off and you penetrate the cork with this Coravan needle that it has, and it injects uh, argon while it pushes out some wine. And apparently According to my dear friend, Robert Parker, he's done this. He's had wines that he's used this on that have been uh, tasted several times for six, seven months. And he said the tastes are identical every single time because of the amount of of oxygen displaced and and argon put in. Uh, And that's one way to do it, to find out. So you don't have to open that whole bottle. Now, if you've got a group, why not? You know, pull the cork on it and do it. Yeah, but I think well, I'm going to have to look uh, into one of those things because we're out here in the boonies. We don't have any groups, and uh, <laughs> and, and I'm not. A, I don't like to share anyway. So yeah, I, <laughs> you know, me neither. I, yeah, we pull a cork. Cassie gets her straw. I get my straw. You know, we're good to go. But <laughs> go uh, move, moving along. So I'm going to look that up. I mean, I can still get one of those in time for Christmas. I've asked you this once before, so forgive any redundancy or dementia on my part. But here, here's a description of a popular Cabernet Sauvignon. I, I haven't tried it yet, so uh, I need you to guide me through these tasting notes. It says, mm-hmm. with deep garnet purple color, 2015 Cabernet Sauvignon offers pronounced black currants, black cherries, wild blueberry scents, and hints of mulberries, Chinese five spice, tilled soil, bay leaves, and tapenade. <laughs> Now, from that, I get the sense that some part of this wine tasting experience with this bottle is going to taste like dirt. The um, that, <laughs> I don't know what tilled soil tastes like, I, you know, and I have no idea what Chinese five spice is. I have a hard enough time with the uh, mugu gai pan or whatever. But the, uh, what, what do, can you decipher all that? Well, I think a, a marketing person got involved in that, and uh, they put all these these adjectives on there, some of which uh, have some meaning, others are rather meaningless to the vast majority of people, including yours truly here. And I, you know, you just wonder, um, sure, you can discern if you want to pick a wine apart. There are certain things, you you know, you can discern relatively dark fruits. You can discern what cherries smell like, what cassis smells like. Those are, you can get samples of that and taste it and go back and forth. And yeah, you can pick that out. Now, the other things, for instance, well-made Syrahs, uh, wines, let's say from, uh, and then it can be blends with Grenache and, and Movedra, but well-made ones uh, usually have what they call a, you know, a butcher block spiced meats aroma to them, or even a little bit of anisette licorice component to them. And that's normal. And you, you, can, you can discern that, but it's not that that's the only thing that you're supposed to be able to smell. You don't. You know, it's like people with like oak in their wine. Well, I, I want oak to be, for instance, in the wines that I've made, 
I want it to be a nuance. I'm not looking for something that say, gosh, that's just fantastic. It smells just like an oak board. Well, you know, okay. Uh, that's not what I'm looking for. Yeah, somebody what Chardonnay tastes like. And they say, well, it has this kind of vanilla oaky component. Now, Chardonnay doesn't smell that way at all. But when you put it in an oak barrel, you can impart some of those characteristics. There's no doubt about it. And done, done properly, judiciously, you can get components there that help add complexity. But I think a lot of these, you see, especially on the back labels, I tried to always be careful with that on, on many of the wines that I, I produced and made sure that even though marketing wanted to talk more about the ripe melon and peach and pear and component, yeah, you can get some of those esters in there. That's true. But don't spend a lot of time on that and expect somebody to pull the cork on the bottle and smell, you know, essence of apricot. I mean, yeah. it, it isn't, it isn't what it is. Well, those tasting notes that I was reading from in, uh, ended with this, spotted by firm grainy tannins and seamless freshness, finishing with great persistence. So th that means I'm going to be tasting this wine for the for the rest of the day after the or your life. Yeah, you know, a palate impression. You know, first you smell it, you get the the bottle bouquet, comma, you get the aromatics of the fruit that it's made from theoretically, and that's what some of those adjectives come from. Some. Some of those adjectives are made up and mean nothing uh, as far as I'm concerned. But um, on the other side of the coin, the finish on a wine, uh, you expect it to be somewhat lengthy. If it's short, that's fine. Some wines just are that way. Uh, Pinot Gris, uh, Albarino, they, they have very short finishes. They're, they're great up front. They taste a little fruity and then disappears. Hmm. But you taste, let's say, let's say you're taking a dessert wine like a late harvest Riesling or a Sauternes a true French Sauterne. They have a, a true apricot, uh, peachy component in the finish and honey-like, honeysuckle-like. And that's, those are things that, yes, it's there. And it lasts for a period of time. And that's, that's to be enjoyed. I mean, that's, that's what the, the length of the, of the finish is all about. But uh, sometimes they get a little too carried away with this. And Yeah, they got a, the wine theosaurus there. They're coming up with all this, but it's tough to... <laughs> keep it in some perspective of reality. But since we're talking about time, some of these tasting notes that uh, when you read about why it says drink now or age mm -hmm. 10 to 15 years. Now sure. I'm not a patient man. Um, so, <laughs> so what essentially is the, is the advantage? Why 10 or 15 years? Why not five to 10 years or 15 to 20 years? Uh, and if it says now or 10 years from now, what am sure. I losing by through my impatience of yanking the cork, right now, as opposed to giving it uh, 10 years of my life. Here again, I think you've got a marketing person who's, you know, that, that, and that's done that way. But I've seen that in some great wine writers use those terms and they've had enough experience where they've tasted a wine of an early vintage. And then uh, they, they find out if they tasted the same wine 10 years thereafter, that the wine has developed. So they use that. Uh, a lot of, I've had a, many wine writers say, geez, when I first tasted this particular wine you made, I thought it was very nice, but a little bit uh, short, augmented, didn't, you know, finished short. And gosh, I just tasted it now at this special tasting we did. And my God, it's the same wine. And yet it goes on length. Well, that's what aging can do to certain varietals, if you will, of wines. Is Cabernet that what the, tannins, the tannins are all about, Richard? Is that yeah, the... exactly. Because tannins are what we call phenolic compounds and the organic chemistry of it is not critical to understand it, except that what happens is over time, because they're very active compounds, they do polymerize. They hook up to each other. They, the molecules that are small become 
medium size and larger and larger the longer they age for up to a certain period of time. Uh, and tannins by themselves uh, that make red wine red, for instance, uh, when the wines are young, they're fairly angular and fairly sharp. And you get that kind of astringent um, finish like you've gargled with uh, Listerine or something. Right. Uh, and not, not that it tastes that way, but you get that, <laughs> that dryness. Well, as the wines age and the polymerization occurs, those tannins go from very angular and sharp to soft and lengthy. So, you know, great Merlots and let's say Malbecs, for instance, which is a great wine of one of the Bordeaux, uh, six Bordeaux varieties that you find. You can drink it when it's younger. It's fairly, the grapes are fairly large. The tannins are plump to begin with, but as they age out, they become softer and softer and softer. And they become, I call them more marshmallowy. I mean, as far as not taste of marshmallow, but mm. texture. So they're, uh, you know, much more fatty on the palate. And that's because of the polymerization. Of yeah, think of it. Think of it as your abs. You know, those things get aged. You know, they kind of soften up there. Well, maybe not. That's yeah. probably not a really good, uh, not a really good picture. But uh, yeah, no. You know, it's funny because you just mentioned that. One thing I've learned. I know it's a sidebar here, but actually, uh, unbeknownst to a lot of people, I've gotten stronger as I've gotten older. Because when I was a little boy, when we go into a grocery store for twenty bucks, I couldn't carry all the groceries. Now, for twenty dollars, I basically can do it with two fingers. Wow, that is astounding. I never thought about comparing it that way. I'll have to uh, I'll have to try that the next time Cassie goes down to the uh, yeah. vending machine to get a sandwich or something. See how I make out. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Hey, uh, uh, what about? Um, uh, and I know that a lot of people wonder about this, including myself. The advantages and disadvantages of corks, artificial corks, and screw off caps. If uh, I'm assuming there has got to be a reason that uh, some winemakers are still using the real McCoy, some have gone to the artificial corks, which I hate because they're so mm -hmm. damn hard to get out of the bottle. Exactly. And the screw off caps. I was always kind of skeptical that you're going to sit there and get a hundred dollar bottle of wine with a screw off cap. It was kind of like, I didn't know that made, they made ripple that expensive, but it's uh, <laughs> that that's just my lack of uh, education. But is there a real advantage or disadvantage one way or the other? Uh, yes and no. Okay. <laughs> so, moving right along. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, the actual, uh, a true well-developed cork from the Subris or the cork Oak um, and processed properly is probably one of the best best enclosures for any wine that's going to be aged for a period of time. You know, people always say, well, you know, the cork breathes. No, no the cork doesn't breathe, but temperature changes can cause air to go out. Uh, if it, let's, say, let's say temperature warms up, you're going to pillage wine out or leak around the side of the cork. As it cools down, it'll suck air in around the side of the cork. That's bad. Even with the foil um, over the top? Even with the foil over the top, yeah. Huh. that'll Because if you ever notice, most foils, there's usually a, a puncture mark at the top of the foil somewhere just to prevent a lot of mold growth. Now, some of the older uh, capsules, um, after about 1985, I could be wrong on the date, could be 87, 88 even. But, um, you know, lead was eliminated from using a core capsule. So 10 capsules, there were 10 lead. Now they're only 10. But the thing is, for instance, young wines like Sauvignon Blanc that's going to be consumed within a year or two or rosés, um, wines that are going to be consumed re relatively early. You're not going to lay a rosé down to age because it's not going to get better. It's going to lose a lot of its fruit and why it was designed and built in the first place. Same thing with Sauvignon Blanc. You're not going to age it for 10, 15, 20 years. But wines that will develop over a period of time, change, polymerize the tannins, blah, blah, blah. 
those wines serve very best with, with standard corks. But what's really important is the methodologies used today as opposed to years ago. It was not unusual for when you cut the, the subrus off the cork oak, they would boil it and then they would treat it with sodium hypochlorite, Clorox, for instance. And then they'd dry it and they'd rinse it off and so on and so forth. The problem with that, and that bleaching would, of course, kill a lot of the organisms that could be in the different pockets of air that you see in the subrus of the cork oak. The problem with that is, is that oftentimes that chlorine compound created a material uh, called, <laughs> not important, but 4,5,6-trichloranazole, which also known as tyrene, but it's what gives, you have a bottle, as people say, it's corked because it smells like grandma's old cellar or wet cardboard. And those are things that happen because there are certain molds that can grow inside that cork that when chlorinated, they can make that compound. And that compound is so aromatic and odiferous that it can be detected by most human beings down to about four parts per trillion. That's four times 10 to the 12th. So a lot of zeros there. And uh, it's very, very, I mean, it's unbelievable. I wanted to show our tasting room staff what a cork bottle was by. Somebody brought in a bottle of wine and by golly, the cork was, it was corked. So I took the cork out uh, that they gave me and I put it in a plastic bag, threw it on the table in my office at Arrowwood Winery. Went home that evening, had dinner, so on and so forth. Came back the next morning. My whole office smelled like a wet cardboard <laughs> cork, and it got out of this plastic bag. Unbelievable how much it was there. And so, but that, I'm telling you the negatives. Now, if the, today, what is being done, instead of using the chlorine material, um, hypochlorites to sanitize the corks, they're using hydrogen peroxide, which does not make this tyrene material, this trichloranosol. And so uh, that's a positive. Now, the corks that you're talking about, a lot of the uh, synthetic type plastic corks and or what we call agglomerates, which are a bunch of cork dust glued together, they're a son of a gun to get out of a bottle. There's no doubt about it. I don't care what, what kind of paraffin or silicone treatment you put on the outside. They are stuck in there pretty good. And it takes an uh, amazing time to be able to pull that cork out of there. Inexpensive wines, you'll see that often, or they'll go to the screw cap. But not all screw cap wines are going to necessarily be inexpensive. Would I put a screw cap on a, a bottle of Cabernet Sauvignon or fine Pinot Noir? No, but if it's something that you know is going to be enjoyed in its youth, by all means, I think that's probably a better choice than to me, the agglomerate cork or the synthetic plastic uh, type cork. Well, on that note, then about the wines, getting the wines and so on for the select group of erudite people listening from coast to coast, how, because there's a lot of rumors and stuff going on about this, but just bottom line, how squirrely is it uh, to order wine over the internet and have it shipped uh, to your residence? Now, I know I'm a Polo Creek. Uh, when I go to the website, put in my zip code, and mm -hmm. it lists all the states that I can get. God knows I've lived in a bunch of them. Uh, Amapola sure. Creek, uh, you know, gets shipped to me. Is that universal um, uh, beyond just Amapola Creek? Is there everybody in California that makes wine they can ship to the same states that y'all can? It depends on which states they choose. One of the difficulties is that you have to keep really meticulous records because if you're shipping to a state, uh, for instance, uh, shipping to uh, where you are, if there's taxation on an alcoholic beverage, uh, such as wine, 
then the shipping winery has to keep track of that. And then once a month or quarter, whatever they, they uh, mandate, you have to turn in how many cases of wine you shipped, the value and the tax collected, and then include a check with that. So that means you got to have a person, essentially, depending on how many states you ship to. And there's a few you can never ship to, Utah being one of them. Um, there's probably a couple of more I don't remember off the top of my head. Uh, but uh, if you are licensed in a particular state, and then that also means once a year you've got to go through and renew the license, answer a ton of questions. Ergo, you have to have a person that's basically dedicated to take care of it. And then you've got another expense of, of that person's salary of between fifty and seventy-five, eighty thousand dollars a year, just to take care of that mandatory uh, record-keeping, tax payments, and so on and so forth. So you better be able to ship a fair amount of wine to justify that person's existence. Now, smaller wineries, sure. I mean, Amapola Creek, we didn't have one person dedicated to do that, but they did have to spend an inordinate amount of time. And whatever their salary was, it was probably twenty-five to fifty percent of their time spent on that. So you've got to say, well. If I'm spending X number of dollars, am I getting X plus 10% or X plus 20% to make up for that if it's being shipped to? So some, some places the wineries won't, won't ship to just because of the regulation and things. Well, look on the bright side, the guy, that money was well spent because uh, to the best of my knowledge over the years I've known you, you haven't spent any time in jail. So there's <laughs> no, a... No, that's, uh, it's difficult. They make it... I mean, oh, yeah. Some states, if you ship it, it's a felony. Uh, you know, they oh. had an article picture of a little old lady standing and it was just a cartoon a little old lady standing behind bars had her hands on the bars and there's this gruff looking criminal standing behind her and he says what are you in for lady and she says chardonnay <laughs> uh, and so you know it, it can be difficult it, well that's uh like the, like like reagan said i'm from government I'm here to help yeah, yes, sir, those Bob. five dangerous words absolutely. unbelievable Hey, the flashing red light is uh, telling me our time is oh. up, Richard, or, or the police have arrived. Either way, uh, <laughs> I, um, I thank you from the bottom of my wine glass here for your, for your time. And our best to Elise and everyone uh, over at uh, Amapola Creek Vineyards. And uh, thanks for putting out such a great bottle of wine, Richard. It's, uh, and it's always great to spend time with you here. My pleasure, Ryan. Thank you.